0: During this podcast, we'll discuss CMS's recently announced bundled payment demonstration titled Bundled Payment for Care Improvement Advanced. With me to discuss the model is Mr. Dave Terry, CEO of Archway Health. Mr. Terry, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me.
0: Mr. Terry's bio is posted, of course, uh, on the podcast website. As I noted in prefacing my interview with NaviHealth's Clay Richards this past December, Under ACA authority, CMS in 2013 began its five-year BPCI demonstration that included 48 DRGs ranging from AMIs to urinary tract infections under four care models. In 2016, CMS introduced another bundle payment demo titled Comprehensive Care for Joint Replacement that focused exclusively on 90-day hip and knee replacement surgery episodes. It also announced uh, a six-month oncology care bundle. This past January 9th, however, CMS announced the agency's successor to BPCI, again termed Bundled Payment for Care Improvement Advanced, that will begin immediately after BPCI sunsets this September 30th. With me to discuss moreover BPCI Advanced is again Archway's Dave Terry. So with that as a brief background or introduction, uh, Dave, let me ask first by, can you briefly explain Arch, uh, Archway Health's business model?
1: Sure. Yeah. So we are a bundle payment company. We are a convener in the BPCI program. Uh, we're also active in the other bundle Medicare bundle payment programs that you mentioned. So um, we've been in BPCI since inception. We we have customers we work with in CJR, as well as uh, I think we're the market leader in helping oncology practices in the OCM program. We have two basic business models. We um, help. we essentially provide all the tools and services to help providers succeed in these programs. So that includes the upfront evaluation process, program design, and then ongoing program management. We have a number of analytic tools and patient tracking tools and and, uh, essentially coaching services and patient navigation services that we provide to physician practices and health systems that are pursuing bundle payment programs. Um, We make money in two different ways. One is we share risk with providers who are participating in the program and we share on the upside that they earn and also share in the downside if they have losses. Um, And then in other models where the provider may want to own the whole program and own all the upside and take the risk, we provide our tools and services on a licensing fee basis.
0: Okay, thank you. So suffice to say, Archway is all about bundled payment arrangements. Yes. So I was going to go uh, next to a recent study in which you are a co-author. But before I go to that, based on your, your business model, I, I'd be remiss. Could you generally describe what kinds of hospitals or physician practice groups uh, do well under pay, bundled payment arrangements? I mean, that's based on your experience, you'd be an informed voice on this. So could you characterize what type of providers are more likely than not to be successful?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that you know there's a couple kind of basic prerequisites. One is, you know we've learned that we really need significant engagement and commitment from leadership within an organization, whether it's a physician group practice or a large health system. you know we've we've evolved to really need the C-suite, you know big health system or hospital, the C-suite prioritizing this as a as a you know major thing that they want to accomplish, you know, focused on the move from fee for service to value, seeing bundle payments as a big part of that. So commitment and uh, at the C suite level and then also getting you know specialists engaged in the in the process and getting good uh, you know next year management down involved. Um, so that would be one, you know, other criteria maybe related to that are you know, see that there's value in moving away from fee-for-service and and taking on risk and managing in these programs, understanding that, you know, ACOs are part of the the solution here, but bundles are a great way to uh, engage specialists. Um, You know, ACOs are really primary care physician-based, and bundles are really more targeted specialists. In our experience, specialists control about 70 percent of the spending, so we really want to get the specialists engaged. and then from there, you know, if you have that level of commitment and engagement, it's a great process because you get to see a tremendous amount of data. I mean, One of the great things about these programs is CMS makes a lot of data available, so willingness to review that data, willingness to share it within your organization, particularly with your specialists, um, willingness to share some of the gains with your specialists and get them engaged. When we see those things in place, we start to see innovation and real improvement and, um, and reduction in the costs.
0: Okay, thank you. Let's let's go to this study that your colleague forwarded uh, to me. And um, you uh, were a co-author again. Uh, the study retrospectively looked at uh, BPCI total hip arthroplasty results for both BPCI hospitals and PGPs or physician group practices. In some of these were 88,000 um, episodes of, of total hips. And you also looked at uh, compared or looked as well at 284,000 uh, similar episodes that were simply under or outside BPCI or simply under fee-for-service. Uh, you had some interesting findings. What were your major findings uh, from this study?
1: Yeah, so a couple of different things. You know, one is, so we really looked at four different groups. Um, participants in BPCI would be one category, and then two groups there. Hospitals that were the episode initiators or the owner of the bundle. And specialty orthopedic practices that were the owner of the bundle, that was one set. The other set would be, same thing, hospitals and physician groups, but who did not participate in the bPCI program. Mm-hmm. And I would say there are a couple sets of couple sets of findings. So one is, you know, this is probably intuitive that uh, organizations who participated in the bundle payment program saw improvements uh, or reductions in the cost of care. And the four to five percent range per episode, and um, and so without without really seeing any change, or negative change in quality, and I think in some cases even improvement in quality as measured by readmission rates and complications. Um, so that was one set of findings. The other set of findings is that uh, while there were improvements for both hospitals and physicians, we saw that the the episodes that were led and initiated by physician group practices outperformed those that were led by hospitals. Um, the difference was was not as significant but was certainly significantly, statistically significant in that difference. And that's, that's consistent with what we've seen in practice. Um, you know, we found that when we can, we really sort of found four elements of a very effective bundle payment program. The first is getting the specialists engaged in the process and looking at the data. The second is creating some financial risk and some financial opportunity directly for the specialist so that there's incentives for, for improvement and for change. The third is uh, getting them the data. So in our experience, you know, in fee-for-service, you know, folks just aren't looking at the data in a longitudinal way. Um, you know, the average cost to Medicare of a joint replacement surgery across the country for a 90-day episode is roughly about $27,000. Um, with about 40% variation around the mean. Mm-hmm. And um, most physicians, when we start this process, don't know that they're managing a $27,000 event. Um, they know that they get paid about $1,300 in their Part B fee, but they don't know that the hospital gets 13000 skilled nursing facility on average gets about 6000 home health gets about 3000 there's about $1,000 on average for readmissions. Folks just don't know that it's, you know, those the total cost, you know, when, where the, where those dollars go, but when we can show them that they are, in fact, managing a $27,000 event, and that there's this huge variability and the you know, dollars are going in various directions, and we can get them, you know, in charge of the money, we start to see innovation and improvement and change. And it just happens faster when it's the surgeons. Um, um, the, uh, it's, it's less, it's less bureaucratic. They're, you know, they're, their money they're on the hook for this, for this, for the losses they get they earn the gains um, they tend to be a little bit more entrepreneurial uh, not to say that we haven't had success with hospitals, but it just happens faster and and um, you know no one has more influence over the process than the than the specialist for a patient who is you know in their care and we've seen, seen that play out in in practice.
0: Thank you. And yes, you do in the essay discuss or try to explain what the difference between more or greater savings amongst the specialists than uh, the hospitals. Let me let me ask uh, one question. And this is still yet uh, not determined, certainly by the evaluation work uh, that CMS has conducted uh, through RTI, and that is, what's your observation relative the concern about these? Is while there may be unit savings. Uh, because of the financial incentives, we may just be driving volume. Um, so what's your sense of, of of the answer to that question? Are we saving on uh, unit costs but maybe driving up, particularly for preference sensitive hips and knees?
1: Yeah, we we haven't seen that. You know one of the things um, and, and I don't I, you know, I don't think we tested that for that in the in the study, but but just practically speaking, the surgeons that we work with are busy. Um, you know, they're not looking to. Uh, you know, they're 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 plenty busy. What we found is, because of the way these programs are structured, they can increase their earnings for a particular case, uh, or their margin, if you will, for a particular case, because we're reducing readmissions and skilled nursing facility days and inpatient rehab facility days. And when they do that, they get to keep a portion of the savings. Um, so they can increase their margin, but we, you know, they're just, it's not like these guys were sitting around and you know beforehand looking for more business. There's plenty of plenty of volume out there, um, but they have, you know, this enabled them to increase their margin and invest more in, in care management and, and trying to trying to improve, improve the process. Uh, we also, um, you know, in this paper, we also looked at the health status or risk factors, if you will, of patients that participants cared for before the program mm-hmm. and patients that they cared for during the program, and we did not see any differences in the, um, you know, health status or risk of the population that, that folks treated. So there's some concern that, you know, people would be cherry-picking and those types of things, but we did not see evidence of that.
0: Yes, I noticed you cited the Alex Houser Comorbidity Index. I actually used to work with uh, Anne Alex Houser at Arc. Let's, let's get into oh, BP, uh, let's get into BPCI cool. Advanced. Uh, so there, sure. there are several substantial uh, differences uh, over the uh, first program, and I'll just name a few. It's an advanced APM under MACRA. It has prospective uh, pricing. There's more sensitive risk adjustment. It's a 3% discount, not 2%, um, and there are other, there's semi-annual reconciliation, et cetera. But my question to you is, since you're so well-experienced and studied with the program, what do you think are the major advantages over advanced? Uh, relative to uh, the first five years of this BPCI,
1: yeah, the biggest one is the pricing methodology. So, in BPCI, prices were were basically established solely on the historical performance of the individual provider organization, and so the only way to to do well was to you know, improve upon your own historical performance. And in some ways, that's good. We want to see folks improve. But one of the one of the problems that created is if you were already really efficient there was uh, little incentive for you to participate in the program. It was really, you know, more risk uh, than there was opportunity. And so we saw, you know, a lot of, you know, really efficient, effective, high quality physicians and health systems sit out entirely or sit out for certain bundles where they already seen a lot of improvement. Um, in this program, there's a much more granular approach to pricing that will um, take into account, you know, certainly will take into account the provider's history. It will uh, compare them more more specifically to their peers rather than the the whole uh, uh, country or the, you know every provider. There will be some regional adjustments so that will um, I, I, you know if you're if you're significantly better than the region, you'll get some credit for that and have some opportunity to earn savings. And then there will be more granular health status you know health health risk adjusting so that you know if you if you have sicker patients in your population, your prices will reflect that. And they're going to use HCC scoring like they do for Medicare Advantage for uh, for, for that method. So, you know, while Medicare hasn't released all of the, the details of the pricing spec, what what they've said and what we've seen so far indicate that this will be a, you know, more granular and we think more attractive pricing model for all types of providers, not just the less efficient providers.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. And the risk adjustment is of the target price, both at the provider and beneficiary level. Let me ask specifically about yeah. the change um, to how quality scoring and quality measurement will be conducted under the first, uh, the, under BPCI, uh, the general sense quality measures was secondary or tertiary. They're, they didn't really give much profile to quality. It has changed. Uh, what, what's, what's the difference between 1.0 uh, and 2.0 relative to quality?
1: Yeah, 1.0... Each provider had to submit what they called an implementation protocol and outline specific kind of self-suggested metrics that that mm-hmm. you know, we would track. Um, and they you know they held us accountable for those. Um, so it was it was you know not all that it wasn't centralized the way they were doing it. In this program, they've identified seven metrics that they're going to track using claims data. So they're only claims claims based metrics. They're going to be tracking. Some of them are are global, so globally, across all episodes, they're going to be uh, tracking the readmission rate, they're going to be tracking how often care plans are developed for patients, and then the other five are more specific to certain bundles. So, for surgical bundles, they're going to track use of um, uh, certain antibiotics, and then for Joint bundles are going to track complications related to hip and knee surgeries, and they got a few that they're going to track for cardiac-related uh, related episodes. Um, so they have seven of those. You know, it's interesting, in, in CJR, if you recall, and even in OCM, there are more than seven metrics, and some of them are self-reported by the practice. And, um, you know, one of the things, you know, Seema Verma said when, along the way here, was that they're trying to make these programs... Uh, easier to manage for participating physicians and hospitals, and so you can see that in these metrics because they're not requiring you to do any additional reporting. They're they're collected all through the claims, uh, but they will track those and they're going to track each provider's performance against those. They have not yet disclosed exactly how they're going to do that. They're going to have a composite scoring methodology that they'll they'll uh, use to measure people on these metrics, but they haven't disclosed the the, the formula for how they're going to do that yet.
0: Okay, and thank you. Just to be clear, as opposed to BPCI, the advanced demo will be fewer in number: clinical episodes, uh, 32, 29 inpatient, and three outpatient uh, clinical episodes, all of which under one model, uh, 90 days. There, there has been criticism of the bundled payment program. I'm sure you're well aware of these. I'll ask you to respond to one or two. Let's start with uh, the criticism. Uh, well, I'll, I'll name both, and you could answer them, however. One is the, the criticism that this may actually increase care fragmentation because the care episode or the episode, again, is 90 days. The other is that this um, competes with uh, the Accountable Care Medicare Savings Program and that it may be a uh, lost opportunity uh, to them, although beginning with CJR, a CMS will allow... Uh, PGPs to participate if you're an ACO as well as in these bundled payment arrangements. So uh, there's some answer to that question. But how do you respond to or what's been your experience with these two uh, concerns?
1: Yeah, yeah, so we hear those. So so the first one in terms of fragmentation, we, we have not seen that at all. And in fact, we've seen the opposite. So we've seen really tightening of the continuum, more collaboration along the continuum. And one of the first things that we do when we partner with a hospital or a physician group who's who's you know, participating in these programs is we'll look at the data, we'll see where their patients are going post-acute. We can see you know, the data we have is just tremendous. We can see every home health agency, post-acute, probably a SNF provider, ERF provider where a facilities patients are getting care. We can see what their historical readmission um, the rates are when they go to a certain SNF, what their length of stay is, uh, what the complications are when a patient goes to a certain facility. So we can use that data to identify who's doing a good job, and then we we develop uh, closer relationships with those providers, and we track the patients during the episode. So there's much more contact and and with the patient and coordination along the continuum. And you know, just anecdotally, you know, the the, the specialists are now much more engaged in the whole process. Um, you know, we work with a lot of orthopedic surgeons, and, and, you know, in fee-for-service, they will tell you that, you know, they get paid to do surgery. And they do surgery, and they transition the patient off to the discharge planning team, and then they're kind of out of the picture. Yes. But in a bundle, they're involved now for the whole episode. And, you know, one of the fascinating things that I learned in the in the very beginning, when we one of the surgeons we were working with, so you may have seen this, but the literature says the best way to avoid a readmission is to get the patient re-engaged with their primary care physician within seven days of discharge. And so I said that to, to one of the surgeons we work with, and I asked him, I said, we we need to put a process in place to do that with your patients. Um, when do you want to have that happen? And his answer was one of the best learnings I've had from this, And his answer was never. He doesn't want his patients going back to primary care physicians in a bundle. He wants them coming back to him or his practice, because primary care physicians just don't see a lot of red, swollen knees that are post-surgical and they don't always do what needs to be done. So, so that increases ER visits. That increases use of, of pain meds that might not be necessary. It increases uh, unnecessary imaging tests and things like that. When they go back to the surgeon and the surgeon's team, the uh, you know they know what to do when they see a red knee because they see them all the time. So the care and that's really true everywhere. That's you know, if you have CHF, you want to see a cardiologist or. Their the cardiologist team post discharge. If you have cancer, you want to see your oncologist, uh, you know, along the way. And so, I think we're increasing the um, the level of support that patients get from the people who are trained to care for them when they're sick. And those are the specialists. And uh, and at the same time, we're reducing the cost. So so you know, we're really seeing much more um, collaboration and and coordination along the continuum, and not not fragmentation. And then. Let me talk about the ACO question because that's another one that's that's uh, near and dear to my heart. So I, you know, before earlier in my career, I, I ran an ACO with Partners Healthcare System in Boston. This was we didn't call it an ACO back then, but we had four hundred thousand lives and global capitated contracts, and um, I worked closely closely with our PCPs who were managing those patients. Um, and we really struggled to engage the specialists in the process because. You know, the PCPs were capped, but everyone else got paid fee for service. Specialists were fee for service. Hospitals were DRGs, SNFs were per diem, and um, but when they're when the specialists are in a bundle now, you know all the things I just described a moment ago uh, happen when it when the specialist is in charge, and um, and you know. Our view is that these programs are very complementary. You know, we, we like the model where you've got an ACO umbrella, if you will, with PCPs, you know, working working hard to keep people healthy and providing the services that they, they can provide. But when patients get sick, we now have the data to make sure that they get referred to the best specialist for that particular need based on what we see in the data and that that specialist is now... Incentivized to be in charge of the process and accountable for the outcome and accountable for the costs, and um, I think that's a great complement to uh, you know a global cap structure. And uh, I think I think ultimately that's that's kind of where we're headed.
0: Okay, thank you. Let me let me ask uh, uh, as a as a closeout, big picture questions, and that is, what's what's your sense relative to the market? Now, again, BPci uh, Advance. Uh, just like its predecessor, is voluntary. Uh, CJR uh, was uh, mandatory in over 60 MSAs. That was cut in half. It'll be interesting to see where the Secretary goes on mandatory, but that aside, let's assume largely these will remain voluntary in Medicare. And let's include bundles on the commercial side as well. So what do you see relative to the increase in participation? Uh, Specifically, perhaps just under what the what you might see, uh, the level of participation on the BPCR advanced, and ultimately, of course, what kind of savings. This is all about reducing uh, spending growth in Medicare. So on those two variables, how optimistic are you?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so this open window period, it, it, it the window opened on January 11th, it closes, and then uh, just under two weeks, on March 12th. 12th right. we're, seeing tre- we're seeing tremendous interest um, from... Uh, hospitals, health systems, orthopedic groups, cardiology, cardiovascular surgery groups are, are the biggest areas where we're seeing interest. Um, you know, I, Medicare has had a number of open door forums, and you know they said a number of times that they're you know received hundreds and hundreds of questions and hundreds mm-hmm. of participants on their on their webinars. So, you know, we, we're seeing a lot of interest in the market. I think we're going to see you know a couple thousand providers apply. Uh, you know. Uh, I would I would guess uh, on this March this March 12th deadline. It's hard to know exactly how many are going to participate because they haven't released the prices yet. So they've talked about the model and we like what they're saying, but until you see what the prices look like, it's you know that's really going to indicate you know how much participation we're we're going to get. And those don't come out. The formulas, the rest of the formula is supposed to come out in a couple of weeks, but the, the prices themselves won't come out until May. So right. you know that'll be. That's a, that's a big piece of missing information, um, but we think we're going to see you know pretty you know strong participation in this program, and you know assuming that you know what Medicare is saying about the pricing is you know pans out. Um, you know, commercial market's interesting, I and mean, certainly Medicare is leading the way on this. We're seeing pockets of participation in commercial. United just made a few announcements about you know they're moving in this direction. You know, handful of you know, Horizon, Blue Cross in New Jersey is. We think the furthest along on the commercial side, and they're doing a lot of interesting things. Um, there's certainly a ton of ton of opportunity in commercial. It's different, though. In Medicare, the opportunity is, is all around the utilization of services. In commercial, there's certainly opportunity in utilization, but the biggest opportunity is in price.
0: Pricing, it's right. The,
1: the price variability in, in commercial, the, the, the provider price variability in the commercial market is just astronomical and we have a lot of data now that we're that we're looking at, we're kind of applying the same technique and methodologies as we look at the opportunities in commercial, but it's really, you know, price dwarfs any other any other type of opportunity. And that, you know, we're starting to do more of this with self-insured employers who are very interested and some payers that are interested. You know, I think it has the, the, the potential to really reshape the market. And we were just looking at, Hip surgeries in Boston from one commercial plan, the variability, the variability of what they pay for the inpatient portion is about 50%, ranging from about, um, $47,000 for some providers just for the inpatient portion, all the way down to, um, you know, low 30s for the inpatient portion. And, um, you can have a really good doctor who works at a low price hospital, which is a great value proposition. And um, I think we're, I think the more more we see this data, and the more we see folks like Amazon getting getting into this business, the more that's going to get uh, you know, the more that's going to get you know, people going to start taking advantage of that crazy price anomaly.
0: Price sensitivity, yes, yes. Well, sadly, we're at our uh, time limit, uh, Dave. So I appreciate this. Uh, overview uh, your research as well and we'll see just to be clear the application March 12th is not does not obligate the applicant um, and there's another step in this process for providers to uh, obligate themselves for an October 1 uh, start. So with that Dave, yeah, Dave can
1: I just say can sure just, please. Can I say 30 seconds about that so yeah so it's a great point so the application to do March 12th it's a non-binding. Uh, application to CMS. Essentially, it, it, what it does is, if you get your application in, you it preserves your option to participate when the program starts in October. It gets you three years of baseline data, which can be extraordinarily informative. It gets you your pricing. So, you know, we're strongly encouraging everyone to apply. Um, and then you can assess, assess the opportunity with, with much more specificity, and then decide what you want to do when you need to make a final decision in July. And at Archway, we have a also a non-binding, you know, free way to help folks do that if, if they if they want help with that.
0: Okay, Dave, uh, Mr. Terry, thank you again. I'm appreciative.
1: Thanks so much, Dave. Appreciate it.
0: You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David and Tricasso. To comment on this program or others. To see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.